And there is the quiz at the end. The, oh, okay. I haven't gotten to the end of a full long episode okay. yet. There's a quiz. There, there's, a, there's a game. There's a, there's a poetry Should I just game. not know anything about it? Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and the game is more for entertainment purposes than <laughs> anything else. Okay. So, Failing at a quiz is not entertaining yeah. to me, Charlie. Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. Today, I'm so stoked to have as my guest, my colleague, J. Robert Lennon, to talk about the Russell Edson poem, The Neighborhood Dog. I'm going to use John's official bio first from his website. <laughs> J. Robert Lennon is the author of nine novels, including Familiar, Broken River, and Subdivision, and the story collections Pieces for the Left Hand, See You in Paradise, and Let Me Think. He lives in Ithaca, New York, and needs to update it with this. He also co-edited Critical Hits, Writers Playing Video Games with Carmen Maria Machado. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I do need to update that. <laughs> I'm doing double duty here. We're recording, and, and I'm up. You know, giving you business reminders. So before we get to the poem, and, and I'll play the recording that you sent me of Russell oh, and reading great. the poem, I have a question for you. So it's a, I'm going to get to the question in a roundabout way because I'm an academic. Uh, so, <laughs> so after Edson died in 2014, you wrote an essay for the London Review of Books. Oh, did I? Yes, you did. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. John, John has a young child, so... <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote in part about the neighborhood dog. And one of the things you wrote about was that when you first encountered him, it sort of opened your ways of thinking about the kinds of things you could do in fiction, the kinds of weirdnesses you could have in fiction. And I was curious to hear about that because in terms of the class that you have taught, it's, it's weird stories or weird fictions. I weird stories. Yeah. yeah. So like did Red, Russell Edson play into that in any way, either directly or indirectly? I would say so, yeah. I didn't assign him in that class. That's uh, ostensibly a fiction class. I, uh, listeners of the podcast might not know that um, when we're able in the literatures and English department at Cornell, we have this class called Reading for Writers, which is like a craft focused literature class that both uh, graduate students in creative writing, both poets and fiction writers and PhD students in, in literature are mm -hmm. able to take. It's a great class because it allows the writers to teach in a different way mm -hmm. and approach material that might not be totally appropriate in a, in a workshop. That class came from Things that are peculiar that have interested me in terms of form, mm -hmm. and Edson is one of the writers who is like a, a hallmark of that category for me. Um, but also like bringing in bits of genre fiction, fiction that defies genre in interesting ways, mm -hmm. um, and straight up sort of experimental writing. Yeah, I feel like Edson uses sort of strange juxtapositions, mm -hmm. like seemingly realistic worlds in which impossible things suddenly happen. The techniques that are common to straight-up fiction writers, uh, and he's employing as kind of a... You called him a, you called him a comic poet in, <laughs> in your other Russell Edson episode, yeah. but I kind of... Maybe at some point in this discussion, we should address what the hell a prose poem is. Because I yeah. think of him as a prose poem, but he's almost like a writer of strange fables. Yeah. Well, I... What's weird is, so I'm not generally a big fan of prose poetry, in uh -huh. part because I always find myself making line breaks 
when I'm yeah. reading them. And I don't do that with him, but part of it is the layout. So like yeah. paragraphs are indented, whereas in prose poetry, I feel like that doesn't happen much anymore. Oh, that's well, interesting. Like it, you're right. Yeah, he looks like his poems look like Lydia Davis stories. On the page <laughs> they to me. totally do, yeah. So I, I think for whatever reason, I mean, we, we can call him a comic prose poet. <laughs> so. We can call him whatever you want. I feel I don't know much about his life, but I, yeah. I can imagine that he probably um, reveled in his uncategorizability. Probably so, yeah. Well, let's listen to The Neighborhood Dog. Uh, this is called uh, The Neighborhood Dog. Very hard to read. <laughs> a neighborhood dog is climbing up the side of a house. I don't like to see that. I don't like to see a dog like that, says someone passing in the neighborhood. The dog seems to be making for that second-story window. Maybe he wants to get his paws on the sill. He may want to hang there and rest. <laughs> his tongue throbbing from his open mouth. Yet, in the room attached to that window, the one just mentioned, a woman is looking at a cedar box. This is, of course, where she keeps her hatchet, in that same box the one in this room, the one she is looking at. The person passing in the neighborhood says, that dog is making for that second-story window. This is a nice neighborhood. That dog is wrong. <laughs> if the dog gets his paws on the sill of the window, which is attached to the same room where the woman is opening her hatchet box, she may chop at his paws with that same hatchet. She might want to chop at something. It is, after all, getting close to chopping time. <laughs> something is dreadful. I feel a sense of dread, says, <laughs> says that same person <clears throat> passing in the neighborhood. It's that dog that's not right, not that way. In the room attached to the window that the dog has been making for, the woman is beginning to see two white paws <laughs> on the sill of that same window, which is attached to, that, to the same room where that same woman is beginning to see two white paws on the sill of that same window, which looks out over the neighborhood. She says, it's wrong. Something, the windowsill, something, the windowsill. She wants her hatchet. She thinks she's going to need it now. The person passing in the neighborhood says something may happen. That dog, I feel a sense of dread. The woman, <laughs> the woman goes to her hat, to the hatchet in its box. She wants it, but it's gone bad. <laughs> it's soft and nasty. <laughs> it, it smells dead. <laughs> she wants to get it out of its box, that same cedar box where she keeps it but it bends and runs through her fingers. Now the dog 
is coming down, crouched low to the wall, backwards, leaving a wet streak with its tongue down the side of the house. And that same person passing in the neighborhood says, that dog is wrong. I don't like to see a dog get like that. <laughs> so I, I just have to add that in the print version, the poem ends, I don't like to see a dog get like that. Ellipsis, it's not over yet. It's not over the yet. Ellipsis. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it, if if he was working off the the published print version of the poem during mm -hmm. that reading, I wonder if he realized that that was superfluous in a public context. Because all you have to do to end is to just not talk for a while and yeah. for people to kind of feel the story echoing on after you close your mouth, right? Yeah, and I and I, it's one of those lines, if you say it's not over yet to a crowd, they're going to assume it's about the poem <laughs> yeah. and they're going to get lost. Yeah, that's true, that's true. <laughs> I saw a reading by Philip Levine when I was an undergrad. It was the first poetry reading I went to where it was like a packed house. Yeah. And he talked a ton and to the point that at times it wasn't clear when he was talking and when he was reading a poem. <laughs> and so I feel like this is this is a necessary stopping point for for Edson. So you ended up writing mostly in the 2014 essay about this poem. Uh -huh. and, and why why this poem? What is it stuck out to you? As? I think this exemplifies a thing that Edson does that makes him Edson for me. And I should add, this is from a recording called The Performance at Hog Theater, which is also the name of one of the poems in the performance. I think it was it like Wesleyan in the late 70s that this was recorded. It was on, I don't know if it's available commercially now, but I, a friend told me about it when I was in graduate school in the mm -hmm. 90s. And I had to mail away for it because that is how you bought things in, you know, 1994 or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came as a cassette with a drawing on it. And throughout this performance, it seems like a small but really engaged crowd. He's also smoking during the whole thing. And you know this because he refers to the cigarettes and lighting another cigarette. And uh. he's... He seems to be using it as a prop. He pa you can hear him pause to, to smoke it between or even during the poems that he's reading. And it really feels like a stand-up record. And he's performing these poems in a way that, I mean, they do come off. They're great to read. But for me, this you know hour-long cassette is, was a thrill for me because it was a new way to experience poetry. I think like you and this Levine reading that was revelatory for you. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, this is a thing you can do with literature that it didn't occur to me yeah. that you could. That makes a lot of sense. You compare it to stand-up records. In, in, the in, essay? in the essay? I, I, I apologize for not even remembering that I wrote this 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I will say that you know, there's object permanence that you develop as a child. I'm in the period where you slowly are developing object impermanence, Yeah, where the past just disappears. The past <laughs> is definitely disappearing, but it does mean that you can be pleasantly surprised by, <laughs> by things you learn about yourself. Yeah, exactly. Well, part of the reason, one of the things I love about the poem is it, and I, I've, tried to explain George Saunders to students in different ways. Uh -huh. One is that if you imagine you're looking 
out of the world through a window, except the window is not, it's not flush. It's tilted to some degree. <laughs> and so you're seeing things in, in, in a really odd aspect. And this feels like it's tilted even more that way. Cause there's, there are things that are normal, but the poem keeps insisting on its reality, which of course keeps drawing our attention to how abnormal it is. Not that he needs to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what's funny to me is that, People aren't always laughing at things that are funny. Yeah, <laughs> and part of it is probably. I actually made I'm, what I was do what I was typing when when the when we were listening to that is I I wrote down every laugh line. Oh, and I I actually I'll I'll have a kind of an analysis of some of them. I'm really interested in when people were laughing during that recording. And I wonder how much of this I've experienced this at poetry readings that that people feel hesitant to laugh. At funny things yeah. in poetry reading. Yeah. A few times I've been the one person who blurt laughs at a poetry reading and, and immediately turn red-faced and sweaty. But like the things that make me laugh in it, in addition to what people are laughing at, which are funny, when she writes, a woman is looking at a cedar box. This is, of course, where she keeps her hatchet. Of course. And then she might want to chop at something. It is, after all, getting close to chopping time. And there's something about the yeah. way he keeps drawing attention to just how ridiculous it is. Well, it's like... It's all completely absurd, right? It's very simple. Mm -hmm. There's just a few elements. There's this, you know, the side of the house, there's the window and the woman mm -hmm. and the hatchet and the and the passerby, the bystander, right? And so in in theory it's very simple, but he's going to combine these realistic elements in peculiar and preposterous ways. Mm -hmm. And part of the joke of the poem is the way he pretends to need to call attention to them mm -hmm. as though you're not going to understand that it's silly. Yeah. Right. So the first laugh line in the poem is he may want to hang there and rest, which is, <laughs> which it's the first moment where people in the audience really kind of grok the particular mm -hmm. zaniness of the poem, right? Like if you've got a dog, he's made this, he's made up this impossible, ridiculous thing of the dog scaling a wall, mm -hmm. right? But then he throws in this little realistic detail. It's like, well, of course, this is probably very taxing for the dog. <laughs> so he's going to want to stop and rest on his way up the wall. And that sort of this, the realism of the detail calls attention to the absurdity of the of the event itself. Well, I talk about this with I think about this with what I talk about with student writers is, you know, you you want to go for specificity, you want specific detail because in part you want to put the reader in the world, and for something that is unreal, you have to convince them of the reality of the world. And I feel like really good stand-up comics do this. Like John Mulaney, I don't know if you've seen many of his, any yeah, of sure. his specials. I feel like he all, the jokes are always in where he follows the details that would be natural to the scene and that the absurdity is in the situation. So yeah. thinking about a dog needing to rest, uh, thinking about the just things like the, the woman goes to her hatchet in its box and that kind of insistent insistence on that kind of detail the that we need that that he's establishing the reality of world the world through through that kind of particularity i feel like the the poem is an extended joke on the idea of suspense mm -hmm. i i used to i used to sort of ponder i really like uh reading mysteries and crime novels and my next book is a crime novel and i would often get through one and think that was really good but did someone really have to die <laughs> like, could could those beats, 
the callbacks, the little details that come back later, the pins that are little details that you can thread together to form the sense of a real world in the form of like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. Could you achieve that level of excitement and suspense if the story was just about the, what if the detective just lost his keys, right? <laughs> that enough. Can you can you write a suspenseful story about that? And I feel like Edson is sort of testing that theory here. He's doing all the stuff you do in a suspense novel, um, and he's making a joke about the suspense, right? He's like, keeps reminding you, you know, that, that thing I just mentioned, it's coming back. Mm -hmm. Here it is. What's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the box again. Now we're talking about the dog again. So, and then we get the observer, right, who's outside the scene and who keeps declaring, this is wrong. What's going to happen next, right? And these are also laugh lines for the audience because as he rolls these out, they become aware of the story structure like structural, not cliches, but, you know, um, fundamental structural elements of story mm -hmm. that he's playing around with. Yeah, the reminder every time, that very same person. We get so much of that kind of repetition. The one that I just mentioned, like, four seconds ago, that one. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. I, I like thinking of it in that way, that it does follow... It does have the structure of that kind of plot. We're waiting for something to happen with the dog and the hatchet. You know, the woman sees the paws and she will need her hatchet. And so there is that kind of suspense built into it. The And the only thing that can possibly happen is that the woman's going to hit the dog with a hatchet, right? right. But this, the poem pretends that that's a mystery. Mm -hmm. and the And we have that, you know, we have the passerby going, something. The windowsill, something. The windowsill. They can't <laughs> can't figure out what the next big plot uh, element's going to be, even yeah. though we, the reader and the audience in that recording, all know it. And then, of course, it doesn't happen. Right. Well, yeah. it's, the reason it doesn't happen is its own mystery yeah. that it, that the hatchet has has turned rotten, and and this is something that I always like about Edson's poems is that there there is always the sort of setting up of some sort of basic expectation like the parameters of a scene like in with sincerest regrets everything that is there is normal to domesticity it's just tilted in a slight way and we're kind of and to some extent we, I think as readers we sometimes well why why is it doing this and with Edson it's just it, it doesn't matter right well the idea that the hatchet goes bad is <laughs> is you feel him inserting a new even more ridiculous detail into the already ridiculous story in this in the world of this poem a hatchet can spoil <laughs> yeah there's another poem of his called I can't remember the name of it, but a woman is serving her husband dinner and she has made a, it's a pair of ape hands. Ape. It's called, yeah, ape. It's called ape. <laughs> and the gag there is like, you, you, the reader want to react to the horror of being served ape hands for dinner. And the, and the character does get very angry, but then the reason he's angry is I'm sick of ape every night. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not the shocking peculiarity of what's happening that he's angry at he's angry that in fact this is routine and he's sick of the routine of eating ape every night well he's interested in he has a lot of poems about domestic spaces and, yeah and there's a way just as you can think of them as mysteries you can kind of think of them and and i have no idea if this was in his head or not but they kind of have the structure of sitcom episodes that are <laughs> based in a house where there's some sort of miscommunication or misunderstanding or the frustration of this kind of rut and and the dog climbing the house is is kind of that gag. It works as a visual gag in a way that you might well. It's it's almost a sitcom, but if a sitcom were dreamed up by 
Russell Edson. Do you remember that uh, viral video from a while back called Too Many Cooks? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Too Many Cooks. Which is just like the opening credits of a sitcom that go on and on and on and on and get stranger and stranger. And they that play upon the tropes of of this very over-familiar narrative introductory structure and they begin to pull threads of narrative out of it in a disturbing and really funny way. Yeah, I'm going to have to link to that in the show notes. I love Too Many Cooks. Too Many Cooks is good. I probably watch it once a year at this point. So (laughs) The thing about the domesticity that's also interesting is that there's always a character who can't deal with it. And to some extent, it's yeah. the woman, although it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to go to my hatchet. But that passerby doesn't know what to do with it. And when Sincerest regrets, it's that voice not being able to, you know, not wanting to talk about the toilet because it's, you know, it's it's from an un... un I forget the phrase. Uh, I'll I'll record myself saying the phrase and edit it in later. No. <laughs> but but there's there's always faced with this domestic problem and they don't want to address it that there's this i mean i know that you can spoil a joke by explaining it but i feel like his poems are always interested in that way that at least american voices in american households you can't talk about the things that are central to your life and this way it's the neighborhood should be this way yeah like yeah. it's this commentary on on different kinds of neighborhoods and the, the idea. dog is violating the social code. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, the HOA explicitly <laughs> says yeah. no dogs climbing the houses. So he, he might ruin the uh, siding. So anything else you wanted to say about this poem? Uh, I will. I want to say one more thing about the recording of the poem, which is. Edson's voice, he has a beautiful speaking voice, at least to my ear, but he has this patrician mid-century, almost like (laughs) mid-continental kind of, or mid-Atlantic, I guess is the term, kind of voice. You can hear the New England in it and and some echo of of Britain in it. And he's sort of, he's sort of playing it for laughs. He's, and he's also laughing at himself. He's anticipating the jokes he's going to tell as they come up and he's chuckling at everything he reads throughout this entire performance. So, and I really like that. You feel the poet's delight in presenting the poems Mm -hmm. and, and this speaks to me powerfully as a writer because it's, I'm, I'm not often asked why I write, but the, uh, and it's a good thing because the reason is I just like to entertain myself, basically. <laughs> I'm trying to crack myself up or amuse myself or write something that I think would be fun for me to read. And um, you can really sense that in Edson's delivery. Like, he's just cracking himself up. He's probably cracking himself up at his desk when he's writing his poems. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I really admire that. And it also... To listen to it, it really has a certain appeal. His particular brand of self-confidence is really infectious to me. And yeah. it made me want to be that kind of writer who did something unusual that, even if people didn't like it, that I would enjoy writing it and I would enjoy presenting it. Well, one other thing I hear in his laughter, too, is, and I think that this is part of what also gives them their energy as poems, is that they, the fact that they are poems 
yeah. that it's a poetry reading. And, and in his laugh, sometimes I hear this. I can't believe I'm getting away with this. Yeah. The idea <laughs> that that something like this is a poem. And granted, by the 1970s, you know, there's Ginsberg. There's been Ginsberg. There have been all kinds of poets writing, you know, surrealist poems, absurd poems. And yet there's something about him that just twists it in that bizarre direction that I don't think I'd seen before. And and like I said, I mentioned George Saunders. It does he does remind me of George Saunders with the sort of incessant repetition, the sort of yeah. strangeness that we have most of the trappings of reality and then some aspect of them really turned on their head. And on the way over here, we were talking about how this is kind of a good thing for you and I to discuss because you're a poet who also writes fiction. I'm a <laughs> fiction writer who sort of dabbled in poetry and, and prose poetry a little bit. And I think that inter in betweenness of Edson is a place he really loves to to live, right? Yeah. These are too silly and absurd to be conventional stories, and they're not serious enough <laughs> to be, or sort of fo formally assertive enough to seem like seem like uh, serious poems, which means they're my favorite kind of thing. Well, they defy genre, and, and to an extent, you just get to let them be what they are. Yeah. It's not whose woods these are. I think I know the horses rebuilding the fence, though. Good mm -hmm. good fences make good horses. Uh, I did I did want to bring in one other Edson poem, since we're both in uh, a college uh, atmosphere. This is, and just to read it, and then we'll move on to the, I feel strange saying we'll move on to the <laughs> silliness since we've been talking exactly. about Edson. This is the academic sigh. Some students were stretching a professor on a medieval torture rack. <laughs> he had offered himself to show them how an academic might be stretched beyond his wildest dreams, like a piece of chewing gum. As they turned the wheel, the professor was getting longer and longer. Don't make me too long or I'll look kind of goofy, sighed the professor as he grew longer and longer. And I, I'll just note on the page, we have a small section break here. Suddenly, something snaps. What happened? Sighs the professor from the rack. We were just stretching an academic when suddenly something snapped. You may have heard it. Yes, I was there. Don't you remember? Sighs the professor. And then we heard an academic sigh. Yes, I heard it too, sighs the professor. It seemed to come from the rack where I was being stretched beyond my wildest dreams like a piece of chewing gum. <laughs> I love how the the characters in the story are in dialogue with the writer and their their awareness of being in a story. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, and also it, it captures for me that that idea of like that sometimes happens in a class for various reasons that you feel like you have to point out the obvious in a way. <laughs> so, all right, before we get to the game, we do have an ad. Forget about using mass transit. Forget taxis, Uber, Lyft. Forget Dickinson rides. None of these will stop for death. But one company will stop for death and ferry you wherever you need to go. From one of the world's richest men, Dante Alligator, comes Virgil Rideshare. Whenever you need to get downtown or you're in a dark wood in the middle of your journey through this life and the straight way is lost, Virgil will get you where you need to go. There's no place Virgil Canto get you, and you don't need to abandon all hope, ye who enter Virgil's rideshare. Eventually, you'll get to paradise. Virgil Rideshare would like to address some complaints they have received. One is about the driver circling too much. Virgil Rideshare only follows the best routes as suggested by our GPS, God's punishment system. Also, some riders have complained that Virgil drivers take them through the worst neighborhoods where they see horrors upon horrors. 
Well, to quote the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find, you just might find, you get what you need. And you can take Virgil Rideshare's Celebrity Tour. Where else can you see Homer, Helen of Troy, and Cerberus? So call Virgil Rideshare. It's divine. Thank you for laughing at some of that. These are <laughs> like this pun-based marketing is uh, always a always a winner. Yes, absolutely. So today we're going to play a very straightforward game. That, <laughs> okay. That uh, usually I come up with names for these, and I'm seeing the brackets here and realizing I didn't come up with a name. I'm going to say uh, I'm going to call this game "What's in a Sound and Fury." Lots of right. no lots of novels take their titles from the Bible or from Shakespeare's plays or from poems. And in this game, I'm going to give you the title of a novel. Oh, no. And you have to guess either the poem or the writer that it comes from. Okay. If you can't think of the title, like I said, the writer's fine. One quick note, the titles only come from poems. So none are biblical. None come from Shakespeare's plays. Before we get started, they're going to they're going to take my tenure away, Charlie, as soon as as soon as they get see what my final score is. No serious person listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, I like to note that if the situation were reversed, most of my answers would be, oh, you know, the guy with the beard or huh, who knows? J. Robert Lennon, are you ready to play? I am ready. All right, number one, Alice Seabold's The Lovely Bones. And I will note, it's not an exact phrase. It's not verbatim. I mean, Shakespeare is always the go-to answer for these because everyone's book is, is is a line of Shakespeare. Pretty much. It is not Shakespeare. It's Theodore oh. Rethke, the poem, uh, oh. I Knew a Woman. I Knew a Woman, Lovely in Her Bones. Really fantastic poem. Yeah. Lovely poem. Number two, and I... I'm going to pronounce this the British way. I once heard it. Evelyn Waugh, or Evelyn Woe, A Handful of Dust. Oh, oh, William Shakespeare. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> that one's T.S. Eliot. That's from The Wasteland. And by the way, when I found, I found various lists of these, and my response to, you know, 90% of them was, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart. Oh, that's Yates, right? That is Yates. Okay. That's from The Second Coming. Oh, my God. I thought I, I'm glad I got one right. Yeah. Well, the only two people have gotten every single answer right. Yeah. And most people are below 50%. As you'll, If you go back and listen to the back catalog, you will hear me say a lot, I'm still calibrating the difficulty level of these games. <laughs> that may be going on forever. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason Jeopardy won't hire me. Well, you uh, keep bringing in novelists to talk about poems. You're going to have to... <laughs> You're going to have to change the settings. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. I did not know this was from something else. Of Mice and Men. Boy, though, taken out of the context of the title of the book, it does sound familiar. I'll give you a hint. Think Scottish. <laughs> okay, who the hell is Scottish? Oh, is it from Macbeth? Oh. William Shakespeare? <laughs> No, it is from it's from Robert Burns. Okay. A mouse on turning her up in her nest with the plow. All right, this one I kind of want to say I need a title here. Marcel Proust, Remembrance of Things Past. I have no idea who that is. I don't know French poets or is he not using a French poem? He's not using a French poem. I'll give you. A it's so generic though. Isn't the 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 more recent translation is in search of lost time? I thought in search of lost well, yeah, that, that is sometimes the translation. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Okay. You, you said the writer's name. <laughs> I did during yeah. this podcast? Oh, yes. Several times. I said the writer's name. <laughs> Russell Edson? <laughs> William Shakespeare. Oh, all right. It's Sonnet 30. When, I when to the sessions of Sweet Silent 
thought, I summon up a remembrance of things past. Interesting. Yeah. So, I'm, so, all right, that's interesting to me because going back to that, the, um, uh, the Penguin translations of Proust, which are called In Search of Lost Time, is in fact, Proust, Proust is quoting a, a version of that sonnet translated into French, and then it's being retranslated back into English in a new way by, like, why did that happen, is my question. That's a great question that I don't know the answer to. And I, I, I've seen the French translation. It's something, something, les temps perdus. Um, we need Lydia Davis on speed Rich, dial. Recherche. Recherche. Something like that. <laughs> oh, it, it, I think it is recherche. There, people are screaming. Well, hopefully people aren't screaming at their at their phones. Or, or, or just a couple of English professors mispronouncing French. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tender is the Night. And I'll give you a hint. It's not the Blur song Tender. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the... Uh, uh, um, it's a different song called Tender is the Night. He's quoting, uh, you know, who is that guy? Lawyers in Love? That's not one. Jackson word. Brown. Oh. It's a, he's quoting Jackson Brown, of course. Yes, because we know that that in The Great Gatsby, there is the, the time machine yeah. uh, in which he tries to warn Gatsby that someone's coming to shoot him. Spoiler alert for a, a novel that's now in public domain. It's from Keats, Ode to a Nightingale, which, again, that was one that is completely lost on me. This this was a total surprise to me. E.M. Okay. Forster's A Passage to India. I never would have guessed this. I'll tell you, it's an American poet. The title, A Passage to India, yes. comes from an American poet. Yes. Yeah, I can't even begin to guess. It's from Leaves of Grass by Whitman. Really? Yeah. I was shocked to read that and then read the excerpt and I thought, how did E.M. Forster do Do you remember this? the context from... Um from the Whitman. No, I have to confess that that Whitman goes in and out yeah. for, for of my head. I just someone needs to introduce me to Whitman. I feel like there there are different poets you have to read at different ages. Yeah, um, I mean this is true of all writers. Like when I I for whatever reason read Virginia Woolf in high school and couldn't stand her, and then just a few years later I was like, holy oh my god, she's incredible. You just sometimes need it. I read every single Wolf in a book club about. 15 years ago and wow. it was great yeah it was great and i was that way too i had bounced off of her when i was younger just because the complexity of the prose was you know de you know was defying me yeah or and uh um and i came around really hard and, and love all her books especially orlando yeah i haven't read orlando bonus bonus story i read uh mrs dalloway in my phd program for my comprehensive exams and halfway through and i tell my students this story all the time halfway through i was just I was frustrated and I just, I couldn't quite figure out what it was doing. And about halfway through, it just, it sort of clicked. And I loved the rest of the novel and then reread it and loved it. And it's, for me, she's one of those writers that is teaching you how to read her in a way. Yeah. And there are, there are writers like that. Um, Joyce is kind of like that, except every chapter is teaching you something else. <laughs> All right. Last one Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men. Oh, geez. I actually know this one, but I'm not going to remember it. Would you like a hint? Yeah. Ireland. <laughs> is he Yeats again? It is Yeats. Yeah. It's from Sailing to Byzantium. Yeah. The the only ones that I got when I when I found this list were Things Fall Apart and uh, Remembrance of Things Past and No Country for Old Men. So okay. I okay. I got three out of eight. So I sort of got two with hints. That, yeah. Well, and if you you know I said Shakespeare so many times, you got to give me credit for the one where I didn't. Well, yeah. The thing is. As with Fitzgerald, you were seeing into the future. Yeah. You just didn't know where exactly in the future. Yeah. John, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you would like to say or plug before we go? 
No. Uh, thanks for your bio earlier. My next book is coming out in February. It's called Hard Girls. Hmm. It's a thriller first in a series. And, cool. Uh, uh, oh, and people should... Um, I'm now uh, uh, the editor of Epoch Magazine. Our mutual friend, Michael Cook, the longtime editor of the magazine, passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I've taken over, and uh, I'm really proud to be carrying on his legacy, and I'm trying to preserve it. Um, and uh, we opened for submissions in uh, January, just a few weeks. Um, it's a great magazine, has, has always been for 76 years now, I think. Yeah. Um, so people should read it and subscribe to it. It's yeah. online at epochliterary.com. I will share that in the show link in the show notes. The magazine is fantastic. The issues you helmed are beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. So thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating. Us, it's me. Um, <laughs> give me a five-star <laughs> rating. If you write a positive review, apparently it helps get views. And, and advertising dollars as well. Yes, all that all that uh, fat, fat stacks from uh, Virgil Rideshare. <laughs> so have a wonderful day. Go pet some dogs, read some poems, and support striking workers wherever you find them. Bye.